0: Good morning, Gateway. For those of you who don't know me, who may not know me, my name is Dean Salami. And if you would indulge me this morning, I'd like to tell you a little story to to cue us up for the message today. A few years ago, I used to go grocery shopping, and my oldest daughter, Amanda, would love to tag along. Back then, I actually used cash, and inevitably, I'd get back my cash, I mean, my, my change, and After Amanda saw me counting my change and pocketing it, after she saw that a couple of times, she would ask me, Dad, why is it that you do that? So I said, well, you know, the answer is really twofold. One, when you go and buy something, you really should check your change, make sure you have the right change. But second, and most importantly, if Grandma, my mom, found out that I didn't bring home the right change, she just might hurt me. So you see, when I was a kid, my mom used to send me to the grocery store a lot. And one of the things that she said was, make sure you bring back your change. Well, I was only six or seven, probably seven or eight around that time, really young, and I wasn't always good about bringing back my change. Most of the time, I was off by pennies, pennies here, or were nickels here, nothing big. But one time, I came home, and I was off by a few dollars. And when my mom asked me where the rest of the money was, I made the mistake of saying, I don't know. Well, my mom was gracious enough to help me with a cognitive reset. (laughs) Bet you're trying to figure out what a cognitive reset is. Cognitive reset was when my mom grabbed me by the ear, knocked my head against the wall, and said, do you know where my money is now? (laughs) So she sent me back to the store. Thank God the man behind the counter realized that he did shortchange me, and I was able to bring my mom her change back. But she was very clear when I got home. I am not going to remind you to count your change again. Pretty impressive, huh? (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, that was all it took for me. That one time was all it took. Math became my strongest subject, okay? Whenever I went to the store, I had to build the habit of making sure I calculated the change in my head. Because the threat of another cognitive reset was enough to make sure I did it the right way. But you know, now that I'm older, I realize that there was a powerful principle that my mom taught me there. It was more than just making sure the woman wanted her change. Make no mistake, she wanted her correct change back. But let me read something for you from Luke 16, 10 to 12. "'Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much.' So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Did you get that? It was more than change. It was about being a good and trustworthy steward. So what my mom was asking of me, I didn't realize she was asking a whole lot more of me than I, I actually got. She was actually asking me to be actively engaged in the care and welfare of our family. And it was necessary for me to be able to step up to this responsibility because one day I would eventually get my own family. And so her lesson was paving the way for that future. Now, there's something that we can take away from that because that habit that I created, right, making sure I had the right change, it pointed to something bigger. And as believers, I think this story helps us to realize that there's also something that we're doing right now in this series to something much bigger. So if you're here from a visitor, thank you so much for coming. We are in the middle of a series that we have titled The Rhythm of Our Story. This is week three of that series. First week, Ed was up, and he did the Day of Atonement, and he concentrated on three things specifically. Forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, and God's genuine offer of forgiveness. Last week, he talked about the trumpet, the feasts of trumpet. That was a stark reminder for us to be able to make sure that we repent of our sinful ways and go and actively engage seeking God's forgiveness. Now today, We have the joyous feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Yay! Now, before we start, let let me pray. Father, we're so grateful for this time that you've provided us. Father, I'm grateful for this time of worship, too, Lord. It was wonderful singing your praises and setting the mood for today. But Father, I know that no time of worship is uh, truly good until we have heard from you. And even that, Lord God, I stand in awe that I'm up here and I'm the one delivering the message. I feel myself woefully inadequate. But I'm grateful for your word, Lord God, because your word trumps any feeling that I have. Your word says that your word will go out and accomplish what you want. And so now I ask that you just empower your servant, Lord God. Help me to deliver the message for your people. May it be done to your glory and for the benefit of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. What we're going to be looking at is Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, we're going to be looking at from verses 33 to 44. Now, before we get there, I think I need to make sure I give you a little bit of background on these observances. We're going to look at the observances generally, and then we're going to swing back and look at this feast in particular. Now, if we look at Leviticus 23... Leviticus is the actual recording. It's recorded there for the civil and religious laws of Israel. And you don't get into Leviticus long before you realize that there's a whole lot of rules and regulations and detail about worship. And, you know, you you look and you wonder, why is it that God, I mean, is requiring so much of these people? It just seems like he's requiring it, right? But in actuality, he is. He is requiring an awful lot. And that begs the question, why? Why on earth would God require so much of these people? Well, I think the answer might surprise you. But it goes all the way back to Abraham. Allow me to give you the the Reader's Digest version, okay? Abraham was a moon worshiper. And when God introduced himself to him and started to establish a relationship, things for Abraham began to change. The beauty of it was God came to Abraham and said, look, I've got big plans for you. Plans are not just going to bless you, but it's going to bless the entire world. Abraham actually bought it because he believed God. And the Bible says that God credited him righteous for that belief. Now, the problem was this promise of a great nation ran into one major stumbling block. Abraham and Sarah couldn't have any kids. But yet, convinced by the promise that God has given, Abraham did indeed believe. Now, the funny thing is, God said, don't worry, you will have a child. So if we fast forward 25 years, Abraham and Sarah actually have a kid. The happy couple at Isaac's birth, they're 190 years old. A hundred and ninety years old. That means Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, okay? The funny thing is, God shows up a few years later when Isaac is a teenager, and he says, go take Isaac and sacrifice him on a mountain. I'll show you where you're going to need to go. I'll meet you there. And he takes off. Surprisingly, Abraham doesn't even skip a beat. The next morning, he gets up. He loads a mule. He has rope. He has um, wood. And most, most importantly, a knife. He gets to where he's going. He lays out the wood. He binds Isaac. And as he's about to kill him, God said, stop. He provides a a sacrifice, a ram caught in a bush. Listen to what the, the writer of Hebrews says concerning what Abraham did. I find it very interesting. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, that God could even raise the dead. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. It's interesting that he says that because in Genesis 15, when he actually was engaging with Abraham, God said to Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. But you know what Abraham's response was to that? God, what will you give me? Not what will you give me in exchange, but how will you prove that? And God said, you will have a son. So Isaac was that son that was born. And what that proved was that God could be trustworthy. He was trustworthy. See, Abraham was there, and he knew him and Sarah could not have children. They tried their entire lives. And God made the promise wait so long that it was no doubt whatsoever that Isaac was nothing short of a miracle. He came on the scene. And so when God said, go sacrifice Isaac, in Abraham's mind, that wasn't a big thing. Because Isaac was born in the first place to sacrifice. So two things that we we need to remember. With Isaac, Abraham saw that God was able to bring life from a dead womb. So if he actually had to kill Isaac, big deal would it be for God to bring life back from the dead. He had already done it. Are we following? So you see that Abraham was credited with righteousness because of this faith that he had. And see, that faith is important because the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And when faced with this incredible truth that God is our shield and our exceeding great reward, Abraham responded in a most favorable way with faith. And see, for us today... That's the truth of our life and our existence. See, God is our shield and our exceeding great reward. The only acceptable response to that is faith. Amen? Now, compare Abraham with the children of Israel. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for about 400 years. God had come to a point where he said, I'm going to go and free my people, and free him he did. He freed them with mighty works and wonders. The incredible thing was that God was so effective in making his uh, case known for Israel to to be let go, that they were not just let go, they were expelled. And they plundered Egypt in the process. Never in the history of man have slavers paid slaves to leave like Egypt did for Israel. But the thing is, with all the mighty works that Israel saw, you know what they're consistent response to God was? Complaints and murmurs. When they were actually free and they noticed that the Egyptians were coming after them, you know what they accused Moses of? They accused Moses of bringing them out of Egypt to kill them because there was not enough room to bury them in Egypt. Moses' response was, just wait to see what God does. God parts the Red Sea, gets them across the line, they're safe. You would think on the other side when they saw that salvation that they would be good but not the Israelites. They complain about being thirsty. God forgave them water. They complain about food. and God provided manna and quail. But yet in all of this, they never responded like Abraham in faith. Moses tried his best. He tried his best to get these people to say, hey, look, you've got to respond positively to God. He's doing all these wonderful works, and all you need to do is show faith. Well, they didn't listen. And unfortunately, there's one occurrence. Moses gets called up into the mountain to get the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. And while he's away, Israel commits the most egregious sin possible. They convince Moses, Aaron's brother, to create this golden calf. Aaron, he says that the calf now is their God, and it was that calf that brought them out of Egypt. When God saw this, he was furious. He had every mind to destroy the the children of Israel. But Moses interceded. He calls upon the mercy of God, and he actually spares the people. But one thing changed, something very dramatic. The tabernacle, the place where God dwelled among the people, the identity of the Israelites, which was among the people, Moses had that tabernacle moved from within the people to very very far outside, the uh, tabernacle. What this signified was a shift in the way in which God was going to deal with them. See, that's what my mom did with me. See, I know I was just a little kid, but my mom knew me. And she knew that I liked to play. I didn't want to have any responsibility. But that got in the way of me stepping up and being an important member of our family. And so when I didn't listen, when she was trying to teach me, the cognitive reset, was administered. And it was left looming to make sure that the proper change in my behavior was there. So hopefully you now see, because of the way the Israelites responded to God, why we now have all of these rules, regulations, and sacrifices. It was absolutely necessary for them in order for God to build in them the right response. See, Paul recognizes in Galatians, he makes this couple of points that I think are relevant to this. In Galatians 3, verse 9, he says, Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom promise referred had come. Then he says this, So the law, which includes all the feasts that we are studying, the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. So you see, everything that we're studying, the feast, the law, everything, it was designed to bring about faith in us. But now, we get to the Feast of Tabernacles. And how does this work? Now, if you have your Bibles, uh, again, Leviticus 23, 33 to 44, I will not have you stand because this is a long passage. But if you don't have your Bibles, it will be on the screen for you, okay? Now, the Lord said, Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's festival of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. Do no regular work. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies for bringing food offerings to the Lord. The burnt offering and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings required for each day. These offerings are in addition to those for the Lord's Sabbath, in addition to your gifts and whatever you have vowed and all the free offerings you have given to the Lord. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. I celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the righteous—I mean, for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. Now, the prescription for this feast is actually in three separate um, passages. It's here in Leviticus, it's also in Numbers, and it's also in Deuteronomy. Now, while I've just read Leviticus... I'm going to commend to you Numbers, and if you're interested to have to read it during your devotional time, it's Numbers 29, 12 to 38. But I'm going to simply summarize what I just read, but uh, Numbers has a whole lot of detail about sacrifices, and I'll let you enjoy that on your own time. Now, the beauty of what these prescriptions give us, it, it helps us to see what the instructions were for this spe- specific feast. Now, It was to be observed on the 15th day of the seventh month, which is five days after the Day of Atonement. It's at the end of their agricultural calendar. The end of their agricultural calendar was known as the ingathering. And the ingathering was that they just took the last crop of the year and they just brought them into storehouses. Out of this storehouse was where some of the sacrifices for the Feast of Tabernacles were to be brought. The Feast of the Tabernacles was also referred to as a pilgrimage feast. A pilgrimage feast meant they had to leave their homes and go to um, sacred um, centers of worship to be able to celebrate this feast. Every person born Israelite had to attend. So this was an actual national observance. Everyone had to be there. Moses later in Deuteronomy actually opened it up and said everyone within the borders of Israel were invited to come slaves, or foreigners. They are, were able to come. Okay. So what we find here is that during the service, you had the opportunity to be able to teach as well. It was supposed to be educational as well as a celebration. Now this was important because this is how the next generation was to be able to receive the cultural understanding of who God was, and they needed to learn how to engage with him. After all, He was their shield and exceeding great reward as well. And so they needed to learn how to serve and worship this great God of theirs. If you noticed, there was a need for them to break off the branches of the trees and wave them as a a symbol of rejoicing before God. By the way, the Feast of Sabernacle is the only um, feast that God commands a rejoicing. But those branches that they broke off, They used those to build the tabernacles. Because when they came in for the feast, they didn't live in hotels. There was no places to rent. They had to build them. And they had to build these tabernacles each year. And these tabernacles were a symbol of the the way in which Israel lived once they left uh, Egypt. Now, if you notice, one of the unique qualities of this feast was this rest that kept coming up. Rest on the first day, rest on the last day. The first day and the eighth day. Every day in between, they were supposed to the first day there was no work, but there were sacrifices to be made. First seven days they had to have these sacrifices. Now it's very important that you understand the sacrifices. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the sacrifices, but the fact that you had to sacrifice. Something had to cost you. Now, so we talked about everything that the feast required of us. The sacrifices themselves, this didn't exempt you because you had sacrifices from the Day of Atonement, it didn't exempt you. You couldn't come to this feast and say, you know what, I gave on the Day of Atonement five days ago, I'll take a pass. Moses said, no, Everybody is required, and if you didn't show up, you, have to, you actually had to bring in accordance to the way in which God blessed you. So that proportion, the way that God blessed you, you had to bring that. So uh, when you came, you had to come with a fresh set of sacrifices. Now, when you think about this, this is all fascinating, I'm sure, for you. Very scintillating, right? It's really exciting, the tabernacle stuff. But when you think about it, there's some kind of implication that's here with these sacrifices and this whole feast in, in, in general. Look at how much God is demanding of them. And when you think about it, it seems like a lot, right? It seems like a lot. But when you think, Lord, I just gave five days ago, and oh, by the way, Nine days before that there was another feast. And Lord, if I gave you all that I have now, what happens during the lean months? Because with the ingathering, that was the last crop. And it had to last four to six months till the new season started. Well, if I gave you all of this, then what are we gonna have? What happens if we run out of food? If you go to the next concern or if you just take it to the next larger conclusion, well, if we leave our homes. We live among a land with marauders. They can come and just come and um, pillage everything that we have while we're gone. You see, the concerns that they had or that could be brought up because of these requests, they're legitimate, legitimate concerns, but you have to realize that these things were commanded for one purpose, to generate faith. So the reason why we are able to sacrifice these things is so that we help to show, like Abraham, to give us a reason or, no, to give an opportunity for God to show how faithful he is. And when we allow that opportunity, we get great gain. Remember Abraham with Isaac. Isaac was the blessing that God promised. But because Abraham understood the method by which God used to bring about Isaac, he kept his promise, it was no big deal for him to be able to sacrifice or be willing to sacrifice him. That's something that the children of Israel just never got. They needed to understand that when you trust God, the things that you think you're giving up are not really what you're giving up because there's a greater blessing beyond that. See, if Isaac was held on by Abraham, if he thought that that was his possession, he would never have sacrificed him and he will miss out on the ram that was provided, and that ram was the actual sacrifice. And so it is with children of Israel as well as us. When we are willing to sacrifice, God gets the opportunity to show how faithful he is, and we get the benefit because he provides us things that are far greater than what we think we need. See, Paul understood this as well. He said, I have not seen, nor ear has heard, or it has entered into the heart of man what the things which God had prepared for them that love him. We need to make sure that we build these rhythms so that they point to the truth that God is our shield and our exceeding great reward so that we allow our faith to build toward that truth by the way we build these rhythms in our lives. Are we following so far? If you're still with me, say Amen. Okay. The Feast of Tabernacle, again, an opportunity for us to be able to let go of the schedules and the demands on our lives so that we can take some time and have a concentrated time to be able to focus in on God and join in with the rest of Israel and gather with them in, in a way that we help to bolster the faith and bolster the culture that centers around God. Okay? Now, What if we were able to just say no? If we said no, what would that do for us? It, one, shows that we think we have the control and the right over the things that God has given us. And we miss out again on the things that God has called us for. Now, that for us as Northern Virginians could be very, very challenging But I'm going to get back to that in a little bit. Now, you know, we talked about the context of these observances. You know, God never uses one thing and not find a way to multitask with it, if you will. And, you know, there are a lot of demands that God makes for us in these feasts, but we might want to take a look at how this feast shows us what God is willing to do. By that I mean, look, there's Christ is actually in these observances. Notice, the Feast of Tabernacles requires us to leave our homes and go build temporary tabernacles. Right? Christ left his home in heaven and tabernacled in a human body. Did you get that? Our shield and our exceeding great reward took on human form to hang out with us. But there's also a different illustration of this as well, too. You know how we have to build those tabernacles every single year? It's almost as if the Holy Spirit wants to get on in the action as well, too. Because he, too, comes and dwells in tabernacles. That would be us. And the beauty of that is that he's looking for new tabernacles to dwell within. So you also see there. there's an invitation within this feast as well, too. Just like Moses opened up the feast to have foreigners and slaves and everyone within the borders to be a part, we get a hint of the gospel in that as well, too. Well, I know I've been talking a little while, and I'm going to let you guys go here soon. But before I wrap up, you know I cannot let you go without at least giving you something more to think about. We talked about God, and I've mentioned a number of times, and if I haven't been clear, let me help to reiterate the importance of us getting this one truth, that God is our shield and our exceeding great reward. If you agree, say amen. Okay. Now, what we need to do and what make sure of is that we have to internalize that because internalizing that is what's going to help us to build our faith. But that's not enough. We have got to incorporate, like the act of these feasts, we've got to incorporate a time where we can break away from our schedules, okay? Make a planned interruption in our schedule and let that interruption be the method by which we gain this rhythm. So that we can point and and spend our time looking toward God so that we can grow in faith. Letting us look at opportunities for God to grow us by showing himself to us. Not necessarily proving, but showing how he is faithful. The way we do that is varied. It doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be hard. But it needs to be creative. So one of the things I would suggest to incorporate this into our lives is that we get some help. If you don't know how or why or what to do, ask someone. If your schedule is that busy, I would suggest if you're not part of a small group to allow yourself that break in your schedule. Join a small group. In it, you will find that break that you need and those opportunities for God to be able to get involved in your life and show himself to you. If you don't know what that means or what that looks like, see Tim and Terry Eagle. They, are, they take care of our small, small groups. They will help move you toward that. Now, it's interesting. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine was talking to me about a Barna study that he had heard about. The Barna study spoke about the fact that many children of believers, they're leaving the faith after they leave home. The number one reason for that is a disconnect in the faith. But you know what the real disconnect is, right? It's not disconnect in the faith. It's disconnect with God because it's not the faith, but it's who we place our faith in, right? But the number one reason that they say that it speaks to, they said it's, not, it's because of their questions about the faith not being properly or satisfactorily answered, as well as the disconnect that they saw with their parents and adults. The profession of faith with the way they live their lives didn't seem to match up. Now I hope that's not the case for any of us here, but if it is, you want to thank God that God put this series on Ed's heart. Because these things that we're talking about, these methods by which we're able to build rhythms in our lives, they will speak to those things. And the last thing that we need to make sure of is that we may need to make sure that we engage the future or influence the future. And by that I mean we need to be actively engaged in seeing the next generation of believers coming through. That should include our children. You know, like Ed and Diane, Alfie and I, we had devotional times with our girls. Every Saturday for about an hour or more, we had built-in time for us to focus in on God. And we made it age-appropriate. When the girls started reading, and they both started reading very early, what we did was allow them the opportunity to read from their storybooks. And it seemed to them such a big thing and then they graduated to the opportunity to be able to look into mommy and daddy's Bible, and then we got them their own Bibles. So, But in the process, what we were able to do was to engage them and teach them those things about God and why we live the lives that we live. Now, by the time they got to high school, it was a little different. Things got a lot different because their schedules got crazy, and so we had to find another way in which to be able to interact with them. But I warned them each up front that when you get to high school, you're most likely going to get taught things that might challenge what you've been taught at home but we left the door wide open for us to be able to engage in that. And by doing so, they started to ask good questions. Allie, for instance, has taken a world history class, and the beauty of it is that she is being challenged by some things, but she's bringing it back and say, Dad, this is what they're saying. I know this to be true. What else could you shine some light on for me? One of the things that tickled me the most was uh, she saw a quote of Scripture in one of her textbooks It tickled my heart because she opened up her Bible to make sure that they actually quoted it correctly. But again, you see that this doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be hard. But we have to build it in. And left to ourselves, we won't do it. We're Northern Virginians. Like Ed says, we like our lives, and we don't want anybody interfering. We don't want them changed. We just want them a little bit better. But the problem is if we build such a life that is so busy, we get the opportunity to be able to literally Practically speaking, crowd God out, just like the children of Israel did. And when we do that, you know, God prefers to change us and interact with us from the inside out. But if you relegate him to the outside, he can operate that way. It's just a lot more painful. Because if he has to operate from the outside in, you thought my mom was bad with the cognitive reef said? God is the ultimate in the cognitive reset. So, my encouragement to us is to look at these feasts in a completely different way. Not the humdrum I was talking to Rob and he said, this is just a big camp day for us, right? Yeah, it could be. But it could be an opportunity for us to signal some times in our schedule where we have to make some changes. What if if we have a, a job that just takes so much of our time that we put that before the Lord and begin to seek a different job? so that we build more space in our lives for God. I'm not asking for any major changes in our lives. What I am asking for us is to build room in for God. And hopefully, as we begin to study more and more of these feasts, you begin to see that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that you've blessed us with. Thank you for the opportunity for us to be in your presence. I pray, Lord, that what scattered words I said today would go out and accomplish what you will in the hearts of the people that are here. And I ask that you would bless it. We commit all things to you as we give you thanks.
1: In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Dean. I'm going to take a minute and illustrate the whole series, I guess, the point of what we're talking about, the point of what Dean was talking about this uh, this morning. I described the illustration that we're about to experience last week or two weeks ago, but I I want us to feel it for real now. Remember, we're talking about the rhythm of our story. And as part of our rhythm, typically, those of you who are connected to Gateway, and and I'm seeing a lot of faces for whom this is true, typically a part of your rhythm is you come here almost every week and recalibrate here on Sunday morning. I think that's critically important. I think that's a critically important part of Mine and Diane's rhythm, and it could, and should be a part of your rhythm as well, but that's not all. So let's offer a rhythm illustration here real quick if we can. So Jordan, uh, Nate, John, Eric, Mike as well. I want you to all now, if you would, to think of your favorite worship song. Not one we did this morning. So just think of your favorite worship song. Don't say it. Just think of your favorite worship song. Eric, you got one? Okay. John, you got one? I realize you're on bass, but you got it. Nate, you're scaring me. Okay. Jordan, you got one? Mike, you got one? Okay. You're going to have to start singing. All right? I'm going to count to three. And... I want you to play. <laughs> no, like I said, you're scaring me. Count to three, and I want you to play and sing your favorite. And we'll we'll restrict it to worship because I'm really scared if I just said your favorite song. <laughs> All right, so your favorite worship song. You got it. I'm one, two, three, and you're in. Okay, one, two, three, go. This is often what happens in our lives. We get out of sync, even with ourselves, and certainly with one another, and with what God wants to do in our lives, and with him. So he built, for cognitive reset purposes, he built a system, an elaborate system of sacrifices and feasts and offerings and gatherings at some of the most challenging times of the year, doesn't matter, you're going to focus on me. And I'm convinced that you and I need to have that same kind of rhythm in our lives or we won't connect to him at the most practical level. So that's why at Gateway we talk about Lent. and What are we going to do during the Lenten season? And and we gather every Sunday morning and we gather during the week in small groups to just recalibrate. I've said many times before, you know, for, for my small group, I don't typically feel like, woo, I can't, yes, I can't wait to go out on a freezing cold night in February and gather with some people I barely know, yes, and yet, over, right, over the long term, that rhythm makes a difference. And so you and I are suburban Americans, and the rhythm of our lives gets set for us if we don't set it. And that rhythm is work week and the work calendar and work projects and school and school breaks and school times and bus schedules, et cetera. Our schedule, our rhythm will be set for us if we don't determine to set it. So our encouragement week after week after week during this season is let's set a rhythm for our lives. Okay, let's stand together. So Dean wanted to make the point this morning that God is our shield and our exceedingly great reward. So what he communicates to us consistently, right, is he's good. He's going to be good. He's going to provide. So let's sing this this morning. Let's end with this as a statement of faith. Tell him he's good. And let's let's close by making a statement of faith.